Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to hear you or see you here this morning, hear you see this morning. Uh, our key scripture this morning comes from John chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. I'll be reading it here for you this morning. John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. For those of you who know me well, you know that I am the type of person who likes things to be in their place. Go, Grammy. It's true. You may be unaware of this, but everything has a place where it should go. And if you don't know that, then come talk to me later and I'll help you figure it out. Um, I am not someone that thrives in chaos. I am not someone that thrives in situations where things uh, are outside of my control. And I have never really considered myself someone who loved to be in control of things. Uh, but then again, I am someone who likes my environment to be a certain way. I like for it to look a certain way and to feel a certain way. And when things are beyond my control or chaotic or somehow things are not where they should be, then it stresses me out, people. Now, I don't know if you have ever reached the point in your life when everything was too much to bear. I mean, all of us feel overwhelmed or stress or anxiety at lots of different moments in our lives, perhaps when things seem out of control, perhaps when things don't go the way that we think they should go. But the feeling of facing more than we can bear, that you really can't take one more thing, is a moment that really probably not many of us have had to face or if we have, we haven't had to face it very often. As many of you know, I have had a long struggle with depression and anxiety. And back in 2014, everything sort of came to a head, which led to me taking time off from work and spending some time in the hospital and generally just trying to make it through the next moment. And that was almost five years ago uh, this coming month. And I can remember that Christmas in particular sitting down with uh, my brother-in-law. And if you think that I like to have things planned out and in control, my brother-in-law is that on steroids. And we sat in his trailer and he was asking me about, well, what's going to happen with this? And my answer to him was, I don't know. Well, what about this? I don't know. Well, what about that? I don't know. And I could just sit there in my emotionally deadened state and see the panic grow in his eyes. There was some relief there also because he didn't have the same uh, experience that I was having, but he also could not fathom of being in this place where there was not a ready answer to the problems that I was facing. 
There was no easy solution to my problems. There was really nothing even that I could do beyond what I was doing to fix or change what was going on. I didn't know what was going to happen in my marriage, in my job, in my family, in my life. So much was unknown and uncertain, and I was completely helpless and powerless to do anything about it. And there was nothing that anyone else could do to fix it or to change it for me. Now, if any of you need a paper bag to breathe into at this moment, just hold on a second. I don't know how you would feel if you found yourself in that kind of moment, and for some of you, there is already anxiety rising up, but here is what I found. I, I found that once I reached this place where I knew with all of my heart that I could not do anything about anything, the strangest thing happened to me. I felt okay. Let me say that one more time. When I reached this point where I knew I could not do anything about anything, I felt okay. I was not better. I was not healed. I was not fixed, which I hated that term at the time. I still hate it. But I found peace in this moment of acceptance. I found peace in knowing that there actually was nothing I could do. I found peace in realizing that even if I put all the effort in the world into this thing, that I would still not have all the answers. And when that happened, then that was when things started to change for me. Wounds were still fresh and painful, scars had yet to form, but I was finally at this moment where if God was going to be God in my life, I was no longer going to stand in his way because I simply couldn't. And I wish, I wish with all my heart that me, my family, Nisha, that we didn't have to go through everything we went to through for me to reach that moment, but we did. This sounds like something really terrible and awful, and in a lot of ways it was and is, but as Paul learned in his own life, he found that when he accepted his extreme weakness, he found that God was strong. And it's not like I realize necessarily in that moment that, oh, God is so strong and I am so weak. And it's not like God fixed everything for me. But through time, I became someone different than who I was before. And in this night that Jesus said these words from John chapter 16 to his disciples, he had already told them of all the awful things that were going to happen to them. He had already told Judas that Judas would betray him. He had already told Peter that Peter would deny him. He had already told them that he was going to be leaving them. He knew that when he was arrested and taken to his death, that his friends would scatter to the wind. And that everything they knew and understood about their lives would come into question. And that they were going to find themselves on the brink of disaster, knowing that there was nothing they could do to change what had happened. As much as what they wanted to, as much, as, as much effort or things they could put into this, the world had fundamentally changed for them. 
when they see Jesus on the cross. But Jesus has made two pretty amazing promises. The first one is that he would raise from the dead. But when he raises from the dead, he's going to go back to the Father and they would feel alone. And so in the great wisdom of God, Jesus tells them, you will not be alone. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Understand this. When you are going to be at your most desperate, the spirit of God will be there. And what will the spirit tell you? The truth. Will tell you the truth. And maybe sometimes, church, the truth is that we are not in control. That the world is chaotic. That life happens around us all the time. That things can change in a heartbeat and no amount of wishing or wanting can set things backwards. But in all of those moments, what is the truth? The truth is that our God is bigger than, greater than, but more than that, present in the lives of those who need him. Amen? <clears throat> All right. Uh, so this morning uh, is our 10th lesson. Uh, lesson in this series about the Holy Spirit. I wanted to let you know that this is not the end of our study on the Holy Spirit, but this is the end of this section. Uh, we'll, in, the new, in the next year, we're going to talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit and what it looks like in our lives. But uh, as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning last week, we have spent these last 10 weeks really kind of trailing along in this one conversation. Uh, this one conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the night that he was going to be uh, arrested and, and taken into custody and led to the cross. Um, and so as we reach the end of these passages from the book of John where he made these promises uh, to his disciples, we want to spend a little bit of time this morning just uh, reflecting on, on everything that we've seen. And something that's really been interesting for me at least uh, as the one who has been teaching all of this to you, is that so many of you have approached me uh, throughout these last few months and told me that this was one of the first times that you had really explored uh, the Holy Spirit. And, and for many of us who grew up in the churches of Christ and even in other churches as well, um, the Spirit was not something that we really studied all that much or talked all that much about. And it's a little funny then when we go and we look at these passages from John chapters 14 through 16 where Jesus spends two entire or three entire chapters of the Bible talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's funny to see that and then to kind of wonder, well, why didn't we talk about this more? I mean, it's not like it was some Joe Schmo on the street that was saying all of this. I mean, this was Jesus, right? Um. And in particular, uh, our, our movement said, um, 
that the spirit doesn't really exist anymore in any kind of dynamic way. Uh, and the answer that they gave to the work of the spirit in the lives of Christians is that, well, the spirit exists within the word of God. So you read the word of God, and that's where you get the spirit, and that's where you learn about it. But the spirit doesn't really, is not really active in our lives anymore outside of our reading of the Bible. So as we come to the end of this part of our story, there is one kind of large question that we need to explore uh, before we come back to this here in the new year. And here is the question that we want to explore this morning. So Jesus, again, had taken his disciples uh, to the upper room. He, they've had a, a Passover supper together. They have, uh, he's washed their feet. He's talked about his betrayal. He's talked about denial. He's talked to them all about the Spirit. So the question that we have is, are those promises that Jesus made about the Holy Spirit to his disciples, his followers in this room on this night, are these promises just for those people that were sitting there or are those promises for us as well? Now, when we read the text, I mean, it's an important question for us to answer. When we read this text, because it is such a specific conversation, a specific place, a specific time, do we believe that Jesus is speaking to us or do we believe that he is just talking to his disciples in this moment? Now, this is a really big question, and it's, it's a really big question and really significant answer because Jesus makes some huge promises to the men that are sitting there in that room. And so if we believe that, we, that it applies to us as well, then it has some big implications for us. So let's explore what some of the possible answers are to this question. Okay, so answer number one, Jesus is not speaking to us. He was just speaking to them. Okay? Now that's a, I mean, Jesus clearly was speaking to them in that place and time. So why would that message perhaps apply to those men and not necessarily to us? Well, as we've said, there was a lot that was going to happen in their lives that they were not quite ready or prepared for. And these men directly were going to have to stand up after uh, the ascension of Jesus and tell everyone about who Jesus was and what he had done and what God's plan was and all of these different things. So one could argue, one could argue that these words of Jesus were especially meaningful to these people because of what they were going to have to directly face. Okay? So that's... That's one way to look at these particular passages. Jesus had chosen these men. They had walked and talked with him. They were given the responsibility for building this church, this community of Jesus, which no one had ever really experienced before. And beyond that, we know that these men did experience a really dynamic version of the Spirit in their lives. Um, they performed miracles, they drove out demons, they did all of these different things. And so this is one reason, I think, over time why people have said this message about the Spirit was for these men and these people, and it's not really for us. But there are some that are like, you know what, that, that seems a little bit too in the can, <laughs> you know? It, it seems a little bit too easy. And so 
um, it was for them, but it was also for uh, everyone that became new Christians. And you see this because right in, in Acts chapter 2, okay, the Holy Spirit comes in power and it doesn't just come on the disciples, it comes on other people as well. And everyone is speaking in tongues and doing these things. And, and, and there's definitely like a thread of teaching through the book of Acts that through uh, baptism and through the laying on of the hands of the disciples that people receive gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so clearly the Holy Spirit is moving in a dynamic way. And so it's not just for the disciples in this room, this message, but it's also for those who are going to have direct contact with the disciples and the apostles. So as the church starts and grows, well, then, you know, this is for them as well. Okay, it's a little bit more moderate approach. But then this is where we get to the sticky part. Because what was the first question we asked? That's great if we can decide definitively who it was for. But is it for us? Is it for us? Okay? And so here's how people have tried to answer this question uh, over time. And the answers have been varied. I've already sort of described to you how uh, our particular brand has tried to answer this question. And the, there are two separation points that people have used to talk about whether the Spirit is indwelling and active. The first one is the death of the disciples. So there are some that, that teach that, or that sort of hold to this idea that once the disciples were no longer around to lay their hands on people, that gifts of the Spirit were no longer transmitted. And so therefore, things changed with the work of the Spirit once the disciples were no longer around. Now, that idea was then compounded when uh, we have when we have the Word of God, when we have Scripture. And that's how this transition happened to, well, gifts were no longer being transmitted because the disciples were no longer here. And then there was the Bible, which is the inspired Word of God. So since gifts are no longer being transmitted, and now there is the Bible, this is the place where the Spirit works. And in all these explanations and things, this became the next main line. And and think about it. Let me just, let's just objectively for a second, which I know is hard for us to do. But objectively, let's remove ourselves from this conversation for a second. Now, let me ask you this question. If you believe that you have the gift of prophecy or tongues or healing or whatever else, what is your uh, theology about the Spirit going to be? That the Spirit is active and moving and indwelling and giving gifts and doing all those things. However, if you don't have any of these kinds of gifts or things in your life and you've never experienced something, let's just say, other, if your formation has come from reading the Bible and from praying and from trying to make the best decisions every day, what is your opinion about the Spirit going to be? Well, it's not doing all these other things, why? Because I'm not experiencing it. Okay, so I want to ask you this question. Do you think that our own personal experience forms our opinion of what the Spirit can or cannot do? I think it does. 
Now, under, I want to I backtrack from something, okay? Who knows who is going to be listening to this during this week? <laughs> so I, I want to make something clear, okay? I am not saying that our experience is the only informant in this thing. There are a lot of people who are way smarter than me that have come to conclusions that I don't necessarily agree with based on their study of the Bible and their years and years of looking at the Word of God and, and praying over it and forming it. But I do have to say that I think, I do think our, our opinion of what the Spirit can or cannot do or does or doesn't do is formed by what we directly have experienced. Because, and this is true, not just of the Spirit, but of a lot of things, right? If you haven't experienced something in a certain way, but others say that they have, and particularly in a matter of faith, what is the question that comes to your mind, which is a very uncomfortable question? Why not me? Is there something about me that is not making this happen? Right? Is there something about me that is not making this happen? Because if I accept that this person has had this kind of experience and I haven't, then what is the difference between us? Now, I have just illustrated for you, I have just illustrated for you what the biggest problem with the church's discussion of the Holy Spirit is. Did you spot it? What is the biggest problem with the church's discussion about the Holy Spirit? Here's the first one. It's actually not about the Holy Spirit or God. That's the first problem. The problem is about, uh, the discussion is about us and what we can or cannot do. Furthermore, furthermore, we have made the discussion all about spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit has become about whether you can speak in tongues or heal or prophesy or do all of these things. Okay? And because we're using our experience to gauge sort of the veracity of those things, we have pushed the Holy Spirit to a corner and, and in this way sort of said, well, it's, it's the word of God because we don't experience these things and, and it's all about what we learn and know about God. And that's where the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Now here is what is funny about that. What's funny about that is that within this discussion that we have covered for 10 weeks now, how often were spiritual gifts mentioned? In Jesus' discussion over three chapters about the Holy Spirit, how often did he mention spiritual gifts? Virgil says zero, and Virgil is never wrong. <laughs> Marianne just passed out. Marianne just... <laughs> Marianne, why would you say such a thing? Think about that for a second, though. We have made the discussion of the Holy Spirit about what we can or cannot do. And Jesus' entire discussion about the Holy Spirit doesn't involve what we can or cannot do at all. Instead, what it involves is what God is doing. 
And this was, you know, for me, because I grew up, like many of you, not studying this particular thing, the biggest thing that stuck out to me about Jesus' teaching of the Holy Spirit, and I've said this to you before, but it is that the Holy Spirit is the plan. Right? And, and, and for us who have kind of, you know, use it over here and, and, and be the, you know, the cousin we don't talk about, the Holy Spirit is the plan. This is what God designed. This is what God worked out for our benefit. So let's look back again at some of the things we've seen and, and, and talk about what it is that the Spirit is going to do. So uh, our first passage this morning is from John chapter 14. If you want to open your Bibles, we'll be in John 14, 15, and 16. We're just going to hit some of the highlights here this morning. <clears throat> John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Okay, so the basics we see here. Number one, the Spirit will be another advocate, which implies what? That there has already been an advocate, which is Jesus, and the Spirit is going to be another advocate. So the Spirit will be like Jesus. The Spirit will be the Spirit of truth. The Spirit will live with them and in them, and because of all of this, when Jesus is gone, they will not be orphans. They will not be left alone. Okay? Uh, next, John 14, 25 through 27. Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Okay, so the Spirit will teach them all things and remind them of all that Jesus said. Why is this important? We're going to find out in a minute. But the Spirit is going to remind them so that they don't lose track of what it was that Jesus was trying to tell them to do in the world. And the product of all of this is just as important. Because the Spirit will remind them of all of these things, what will they have? They will have peace. So don't be troubled or afraid. God is sending something back to you that is going to help you navigate all of this chaos that you are about to experience. John 15, 26 through 27. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So their job is going to be to go out and to stand up and to say, this is who Jesus is. This is what God is doing. This is what is happening in the world. And the spirit is going to testify, not just to the world, but to them. So that they know what? They know the... Truth. It is the spirit of truth. Do you see how all this is starting to like mesh together? They will know the truth so that when they stand up and testify, they will testify with confidence. 
because they will remember all that Jesus has said. The Spirit is testifying to them about what is going on, and they will stand up and testify to the world. John 16, 4 through 11. I have told you this so that when their hour comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I do not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Okay, again, Jesus makes this incredibly important point. I have to leave. And the reason why I have to leave is because if I don't leave, then the Spirit won't come back. And again, this mind-blowing thing, it is better for you to have the advocate than it is for you to have me. It is better for you to have the advocate than it is for you to have me. These are Jesus' words. Well, how can we elevate the Spirit to such a place where it's somehow better than Jesus? Jesus did it himself. We're not doing it. Jesus himself said, it is better for me to go away so that the Spirit will come back. And why is it better? Well, I ask you again, where is the Spirit going to live? Inside of us. These internal changes that need to happen, this reminding of what God is doing, this changing of the hearts, and that's what this last part of this scripture is about. The Spirit is going to convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin, that there actually is a problem. Righteousness, that Jesus is who he says he is and is the Savior and the plan that God has. And judgment, that something needs to be done for you. And that Jesus is that answer. And the Spirit is going to be the one to speak to people's hearts and to make this change happen. So the disciples will stand up and they will testify to the truth. But is it them that is going to change the hearts and minds of those that hear this testimony? No. It is the Spirit that is going to convict them and cause change to happen in their lives. And lastly, John 16, 12 through 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All, these, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Again, it's the Spirit of truth that will guide you into all the truth. And you don't need to worry about if things are right or wrong. It's the Spirit of truth. And everything from Father goes to who? To Jesus. And everything from Jesus goes where? To the Spirit. Okay? So it's going from the Father to the Son to the Spirit. They are all working together. This is, this is the crazy part. Like, wrap your minds around this for a second. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working together to do what? To do what? 
to live inside of us and help us to know that all this is true and right and that we need Jesus and he is who he says he is. Think about that. This whole thing, this whole crazy, indwelling, Jesus, Holy Spirit thing, according to Jesus, is so that we will know the truth. And we will stand up and speak the truth. And that others will hear the truth. And the Spirit will convict them of the truth. There's a word I said a lot there. It's not the. <laughs> All of the Spirit's work will, will point back to Jesus and what God has done through him. So Jesus told his disciples that the Spirit was going to do a lot, and this has been our working uh, definition, <laughs> if you will, of the advocate, the helper. So here we go. It's the uh, advocate, comforter, companion, guide, counselor, helper, friend, helping presence, intercessor, encourager, exhorter, supporter, advisor, and consoler. One who is called beside us or summoned, one who speaks up for us, one who speaks into lives to achieve a positive effect, one who offers assistance in a situation where help is needed. We have seen all of these things in John chapters 14 through 16. So to what end are all of these benefits promised? What is the point of all of these gifts being given? Well, the point is that the work of Jesus on earth is not going to stop when Jesus is no longer on earth. Now, we can look at that and say, of course. But you have to remember that Jesus is talking to people who live, <laughs> eat, breathe, sleep Jesus all the time. And when Jesus is gone, what is going to be their first question? Now what do we do? Right? The work of Jesus will not stop when Jesus goes away. And he's counting on his followers to continue the work, to continue the things that he has done, to help the world know him and know who he is. But God has this plan to help that happen. And this plan is that the Spirit will come and will do all of these things for them. So that, <laughs> let me ask you this question. What is the one thing? The disciples have to do one thing. What is the one thing that they have to do? They have to testify. They have to testify. And God does everything else. Think about that for a second. So in this situation that could be completely overwhelming, completely like, how do we carry on for the Son of God? What has Jesus just told them? Why don't you just stand up and say what's true? Which, by the way, God is going to tell you what's true and help you remember what's true. And God will do everything else. God will do everything else. So this is what Jesus is promising to them. You're going to have the presence of God living inside of you, remind you, doing all of these things, helping you to stand up and testify to the truth of Jesus 
and the plan of God. So, is the promise of the Spirit for us, or is it just for these guys that we're going to have to do this job? Well, in order to better answer this question, we are actually going to do something a little funny, and that is we're going to look at the book of John um, as a whole, because it might answer a few questions for us to let us know whether this applies to us. So let's, let's look at just the content of the book of John. Um, you might be surprised if you were to go back and read the Gospel of John from beginning to end about the things that John did not include in his Gospel. Um, John doesn't include a parable of Jesus. Uh, he doesn't include the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he leaves off uh, any reference to Jesus' birth or the Transfiguration or uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, five of the twelve apostles are not ever even named in the book of John. Okay? On the other hand, this one conversation that Jesus has takes up how many chapters? Three. Right? Three full chapters. He gives more space to this final discussion than to any other event in Jesus' ministry. More space than he devotes to all of the signs combined, to the temple controversies, and even to the events of the cross and the resurrection. The Gospel of John has 21 chapters. Of those, seven chapters, verses thir- or chapters 13 through 19, report the events of a single 24-hour span. Um, Four chapters, 13 through 16, record a single night in conversation. So nearly a third of all the words Jesus speaks in the entire Gospel of John are used in this section. So looking at that, it's hard to argue the idea that John thought this final conversation really only applied to the people that were in the room. Right? I mean, if he believed that it really only applied to the people that were in the room, then why give it so much attention? More than anything else. So John obviously thought this discussion and these ideas about the Spirit were important for everyone to hear. So why did he think that these words were so important? Well, let's look at when the Gospel of John was written. Uh, It's commonly believed that John was the last gospel to be written out of all of them. It's believed that Mark was the first and was used as a source for both Matthew and Luke. Uh, And then that John was written last. Uh, Most scholars believe that the gospel of John was written somewhere near the end of the first century. Um, And after most of the other books of the New Testament were in circulation. So basically what I'm saying is the gospel of John came pretty much towards the end of a lot of the writings. So the writings of Paul uh, were obviously already in circulation, of Peter, of all these different things they were going around. So if it is true that miracles ceased with the death of the apostles and that the Spirit's active work in Christians came to an end um, somehow at the com- when uh, the disciples were gone or at the completion of the Bible, then John was writing at the very end of the time when a living, indwelling, miraculous Spirit could be experienced. Do you follow me with that? Sort of? That's a weird statement. But So he would have been um, one of the last voices out there to talk about what the Spirit does. So if he were one of the last to put his words out there in terms of what the Spirit does, 
Why would he spend so much time writing about the work of the Spirit from the mouth of Jesus, no less, if the work of the Spirit was soon to be replaced? Um, and why talk about the experience in such a personal way? Why highlight the indwelling? Why highlight everything that the Spirit is going to do internally if the experience was going to change radically? So who was John writing to then? If, if he's sort of coming towards the end, then, then what is his audience? And, and the community that John was writing to was in pretty bad shape. They were discouraged, uh, wondering about their future and wondering why Jesus had not come back yet. You know, you read through some of the writings of Paul, for example, and Paul writes that uh, Jesus is coming back presently. Like, he tells people, don't bother getting married because you're wasting your time. I mean, unless it's going to cause you to sin because, you know, you can't, but then fine. But if you can refrain from this, just focus on Jesus coming back because Jesus is coming back soon. But then Jesus hadn't come back and people were wondering, well, where is he? Right? Um, John himself had spent a ton of time in prison and was soon going to, uh, to die. Uh, and that was going to be devastating to this group that had become really dependent upon him. So ironically enough, as John is writing these words, from Jesus to the disciples. He is, John's disciples are experiencing a very similar thing where they know he's not going to be around that much longer. Uh, so these words had to ring in a, in a certain kind of way for them. He had been uh, their apostle for a long time and now the end was drawing near and they were conscious of how important he was to them. So this is the message then that John highlights within his gospel. Now, why would these words of Jesus in particular be so significant to a community that is suffering, is hurting, and about to lose the person who has helped guide them spiritually? Why? Because what does Jesus say? The Spirit has been sent by God to continue everything that God is doing. And so understand, I mean, John is not equating himself to Jesus, and that's not what I'm saying. But understand this, to a community that is going to lose John, what is a main message they need to hear? Things don't stop. I mean, they didn't stop when Jesus left. Right? So if I, if I John, go away, it's going to be all right. Because look, this is what Jesus has promised to us from all of these different things. Okay, so that's why he wrote that to them. But are these promises for us? Okay, I get it. I, I know. Thank you for reminding me what the question is. I really appreciate it. Um, look at all the things the apostles did and Jesus called them. He trained them. They were given power and authority. They had wisdom and understanding. They, if we look at the disciples in the book of Acts, if we read what they wrote throughout their letters, they just seem so different from us. And so doesn't it make sense then that they had something more than we do? Now again, what are we trying to justify? When we ask that question, what are we trying to justify? Our own experience. If we are different from them, then didn't they have something that we don't have? But here's what I want to argue for us this morning. 
when it comes to this discussion about the Holy Spirit, it is not the differences between us and the apostles that are important. It is, in fact, the similarities. Because we are very much like them. So let's backtrack and ask some other questions. Uh, First one, do we have the same kinds of needs that the disciples had at the time that Jesus said these things? I would say yes. The apostles that Jesus was speaking to, uh, they were not bold and brave people. They were not full of wisdom and understanding and spiritual courage. These men in that room, they felt inadequate and secure. They were confused about what's going on. They didn't really know what to do. Their hearts were troubled. They had anxiety. They were on the verge of panic. They just didn't know it yet. Everything they thought was right and good and should happen was going to fall apart and not happen. Their hearts were troubled and they were nowhere near ready for what was to come. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Because it sounds familiar to me. Because it reminds me of myself. And as I shared with you earlier today, I know what it is to be afraid and to not know how to handle what I'm facing. I know what it means for something to change your life in a moment. I struggle with knowing what to do and how to do it and always comprehending God's will for my life. I am not so different from these guys. Well, what about circumstance? Do we share circumstances with them? Is Jesus offering the disciples a spirit because they have been up close and personal with him and because they're going to have to take the gospel out for the first time? Is it because they've seen and heard all of these things that Jesus did firsthand that they are going to receive the spirit so they can be the most effective first messengers? And that doesn't seem to be what Jesus says It seems that they are going to receive the Spirit not because they lived with Jesus, but because they were going to have to live without him. The the Spirit that Jesus offers in John is not the answer to good and faithful service. It's not even the answer to being close to Jesus. It is the answer to what you do when Jesus is no longer there. They will spend the rest of their lives pursuing their mission without the presence of their master. They will face a hostile world without Jesus in front of them as their shield, and they will feel inadequate. They will struggle. They will not always do the, hard, the right thing, but the, the issue that Jesus knows they will face is that he himself will be dead, risen, and gone, and his followers must go on without him. And this, again, is common ground for us. We know all about being disciples here while Jesus is not here. We know all about wishing that we could just talk to him face to face. We know all about trying to muddle through without the physical presence of our Savior. I asked the question early on in this series, if you could choose between having Jesus right in front of you now or the Spirit living inside of you, which would you choose? We would choose Jesus. We would. Even through all of this we would probably still choose Jesus. But what was Jesus' response? Don't! (laughs) The Spirit is coming. So we're not so different from them in that way. And then we also have 
some common limitations. I mean, as much as we respect and admire the apostles, the fact of the matter is they were just regular old people like us. They did not have special capabilities. That's not why they were chosen for this job. They didn't have it all together. They didn't know everything they needed to know, even though they thought they did at certain times. Jesus promised them the Spirit because he knew that they could not overcome their limitations on their own. Jesus offered them the Spirit because he knew they could not overcome their limitations on their own. So think about what Jesus promised them again. The presence of God to live inside them, to ease their fears, a teacher to help them know what they need to know, testimony and conviction to make them more effective, revelation to help them know God, working in the hearts and minds of those that they are speaking to, to change things for God in this world. Which has led me at least to this conclusion. Jesus does not send his disciples the helper because of who they are. He sends them the helper because of who he needs them to be. And if we are so like them, And let me just ask this question. Does the testimony of Jesus need to go out into this world? Do we need help remembering what Jesus has told us? Do we need something inside of us to convince us that Jesus is true? when everyone around us is saying he's not true for them? Do we need help being bold and knowing what to say? Do we need Jesus, do we need the Spirit to change the hearts and minds of those that we share with? Do we need this as much as the disciples did? Yes, we do. And let's not ignore this one Huge word that we see in John chapter 14. You probably didn't even notice this when we read it the first time. But look at this again. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. How long? Forever. To be with you forever. What does Jesus mean when he says forever? Jesus has a pretty long view of eternity, my friends. Much longer than we do. And if Jesus says the Spirit is going to come and work forever, does he mean, well, the Spirit's going to work until this happens. The Spirit's going to do this until that happens. Well, once you have written word in front of you, you can figure it all out. Jesus knows us better than that, doesn't he? And when we look at all of these things together, I realize, you know, all of these things that Jesus has said about the Spirit, again, is really not about what I can or cannot do. It's not about what I can or cannot do. Instead, 
it is all about what God is going to do. This is the system that God has set up. That the Spirit would live inside of us, that it would change our hearts and our minds, that it would remind us of the truth, that it would give us boldness, that it would allow us to stand up and speak. And so, I stand before you today and tell you this. Number one, I will never say that God cannot do something. I'm not saying he will not. But I will never say that God cannot do something. And I will not say that God's spirit cannot do something amazing and miraculous in the lives of other people. Number two, God's goals for this world have not changed since the moment that Jesus spoke these words. Jesus is no less important now than he was then. The world is just as lost now as it was when Jesus knew he was going to the cross to die for all of us losers. Because he loves us. That has not changed. Number three, God is still working through imperfect people to change this world. And as we've talked about through this series, the power of what we have to share with people is that God has changed us. That we are different, that we can stand up and testify to the truth. And the truth is not, God changed lives like yours. The truth is that God changes lives like mine. And he can change yours too. God is still working through imperfect people. Number four, these imperfect people still need God's help. I mean, there are days where I can't, you know, I'm searching my house for my keys that are in my pocket. (laughs) I mean, you could give me one of those little tile things with the GPS and it would point to me and I'd be like, what? (laughs) We still need help. But furthermore, you ready? This is the best part. God wants to give us the help that we need. Which is the strongest argument for why the Spirit still does all of these things in our lives. God does not desire to leave us to our own devices, our own work, our own words, our own thoughts, our own hearts, because he knows we need a Savior. And he knows that if we are going to be the people to change this world for God, then we need help, and he wants us to have the help that we need. This God that we see in John is a generous and loving God who has planned for all of this, for our benefit, for the benefit of the kingdom. And that God still wants this kingdom to grow. And he is still using those who know him to take the truth out there. And he still wants it to work. He still wants it to work. And if God set this plan in motion so that those who were taking the gospel out into the world could do it in a way that would change lives, doesn't God want that for us too? And why would God decide that his spirit could live inside of us in this kind of way and then take it away? Why? 
which leads me finally to a moment of just extreme gratitude. Extreme gratitude. That God knows us and loves us. And we accept so readily and fully that the salvation that God offers us through Jesus is through his knowledge of who we are and that he loves us and accepts us as who we are. But let's not get confused. He does not then leave us alone once we know Jesus. Because God has a design for us to take the truth out into the world. And he knows it's going to be frustrating. I mean, he's dealt with humanity way longer than we have. But what does he want? As Paul said, he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We are the voice of truth. And God wants to give us everything we need to speak the truth to a world that still needs Jesus as much today as it did 2,000 years ago. As it did from the dawn of time. Amen? Praise God that he gives us what we need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the promises that Jesus has spoken. And God, (laughs) we get to read in your word how these promises were carried out in the lives of those that were in that room. But God, we may we be astounded, grateful, blessed, because you have planned for this same spirit to live in us. God, we have ignored the work of your spirit in our lives. We haven't understood it, haven't been able to control it, haven't been able to explain it. But God, as we look at everything you said, may we realize it's not about us, but it's about what you are doing to change us and to make us your messengers in this world. And God, I confess, I don't want to do that alone. I don't want it to be up to me. So I'm grateful that you have a plan, God, (laughs) to use your own power in us that others' lives might be changed. May we ignore your spirit no longer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.